and this is Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus, increment 98. We're going to be going a little deeper into Hebrews today, into Hebrews 10.36 to start with, and then we'll be circling back to Hebrews 4 perhaps sometime. I also want to make a couple of intersections with the book of Revelation, starting with Revelation 13.10. So before we get into prayer, you might want to have your scripture verses ready. And we're going to start, in fact, with Revelation today. And so, Father, we thank you for the many correlations that we find in the scriptures, the many conflations that we find in the pages of the Bible, which, when we find them, they produce insight, they produce enlightenment, and as the scripture says, the entrance of your word gives light, gives understanding to the naive and the simple. Grant us understanding today, the kind of understanding that our Lord Jesus Christ came to give us according to 1 John 5.20. And we thank you for this privilege, and it is a privilege, to study the word today. In Jesus' name, amen. There are many intersections of Hebrews with the book of Revelation, and as we've been discovering, notable among them is their shared call for perseverance and fidelity by the people of God. Revelation 13.10, here is where the perseverance and the fidelity of the saints is called for. There's a certain context in which the perseverance and the fidelity of the saints is called for. We have such a time as that in our history. This is a time where the perseverance and the fidelity of the saints is called for in an extraordinary way, as it was in the time of Revelation. Revelation 14.12 also says, This is where the perseverance of the saints, those who guard the commandments of God and participate in the faithfulness of Jesus, is called for. There's a call for perseverance. And the reason I make this connection with Hebrews is because Hebrews itself is a call to perseverance. A call to perseverance to the initial recipients of that homily, which also translates into a call for perseverance in our own time. And by perseverance, I mean persistent faith, persistent faith, hope, and love by the people of God. In Revelation 2, 2, and 2.3, as well as Revelation 2.19, the theme persists in Revelation. The Son of Man commends the perseverance of the saints in Ephesus, as well as in Thyatira in Asia Minor. In Revelation 3.10, Jesus commends the angel of the church at Philadelphia for Keeping the word of my perseverance, he says. He commends the angel, the angelos, the messenger, perhaps even we could say the pastor teacher, the overseeing pastor of the church in Philadelphia for keeping 
the word of my perseverance. The word of Jesus' perseverance, which the messenger kept, is the preaching of Jesus Christ and him crucified to the congregation in Philippi. That in turn imparted perseverance to them to undergo certain adversities and tribulations in their own time and to endure them and come through the other side. The fact that Jesus, the Son of Man, was either commending or censuring the angels of the churches in Asia Minor refers to the accountability of those angels. Again, angels can be human messengers and probably are there, and it correlates with Hebrews 13.7. Those who spoke the word of God to you, remember them. And it says in Hebrews 13.17, yield the right of way to them. Let them fulfill their ministries because they are those who give an account. They are those who watch over your souls and they must give an account. They're accountable to the shepherd, the great shepherd, the shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus, whom God led up from the dead. So again, the fact that Jesus, the Son of Man, as he's called, was either commending or censuring the angels of the churches in Asia Minor finds a correlation with those who speak the word of God to their congregations and who must give an account to the Lord. So even there, there's a connection or an intersection with Hebrews. The perseverance required of the saints, by definition, at least I would give it this definition, the perseverance required of the saints is their participation in the perseverance of Jesus himself. And that perseverance, of course, is transferable to us to our soul, our spirit, our heart, and even our bodies through the Holy Spirit. John, to whom the apocalypse was entrusted, wrote this in Revelation 1.9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the perseverance that is in Jesus came to be on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, the testimony of Jesus also is an intersects with the testimony of Jesus in Hebrews, which is what we call our bold confession of Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus as Lord, Kurios, Jesus as Savior, Soter, Jesus as God, Theos, Back in these days, in the time of the book of Revelation and the book of Hebrews, it cost you something to make that confession because those are titles that were given to Caesar. And if they were not used of him, there was penalties for it. So note the intersection of these passages, especially Revelation 13.10 and 14.12 with Hebrews 10.36. For you have need of perseverance. I'm just going to quote that part of it. Hupamones gar ekete krian. You have need of perseverance. And it's that very Greek phrase that will be the title of increment 98. And in Hebrews 12... 
And I find this much, much more significant of a verse and passage. Every time I read it, I see its significance more and more. Hebrews 12.1, for this reason, since we have such a great host of witnesses, now cloud is a metaphor for host of witnesses, surrounding us, and please notice, they're surrounding us, or surrounding the initial recipients of Hebrews. There's a suggestion here that to surround historically a certain people means that there are witnesses behind them in history as well as witnesses before them or after them in history. There's actually a reference to you as part of these cloud of witnesses if you look at it that way. So for this reason, since we have such a great host of witnesses surrounding us, that host of witnesses are people, men and women, from various eras of history, various epochs, E-P-O-C-H-S, of history preceding them. They became a host of witnesses, and the word witnesses is, includes the meaning of martyrs. Some of them were actually martyrs because of their faith. So for this reason, since we have such a great host or cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let's lay aside every weight and the easily ensnaring sin. That easily ensnaring sin here is unbelief specifically. And strive to advance in the contest. Yes, it means race. And yes, it means run the race. But the word agona is used here. And so it's not just a race. It's more like a pentathlon, several events. It's a contest involving several events, including running a race to obtain a prize. It probably also included wrestling or boxing and other things, some of which could even be considered gladiatorial. So for this reason, since we have such a great host of witnesses surrounding us, the picture is, of course, the stadium, the round stadium like the Colosseum in Rome, where... Hundreds of people are watching a contest. We have a great host of witnesses surrounding us. Let's lay aside every weight and the easily ensnaring sin of unbelief and strive to advance in the contest that is set before us. But Hebrews 12.2 goes on even more significantly to urge his readers to be, quote, looking away, looking away, from everything else. That's how I would translate that. Looking away from everything else and freely from everybody else and fixing our eyes on the founder and perfecter of the faithfulness that's required of us. The author and finisher of faith is usually how it's translated. That's not bad. But looking away from everything else and fixing our eyes on the founder and perfecter of the faithfulness that's required of us then we have the simple name Jesus. Jesus. Simply mentioned by name as Jesus ten times in Hebrews for a reason. Jesus, who persevered through the cross, fixing our eyes on Jesus, why? 
so we can see Jesus with the eyes of our heart. That's our focus. That's the whole focus of our being. That's the secret and the key to perseverance because it's the transference of his perseverance to us in the power of the Holy Spirit that allows us to persevere in faith through various kinds of tests and trials, adversities, and prosperity tests too. Jesus, notice what it says then, who persevered through the cross. And I love the way one translator puts it, unafraid of the shame. Now, there are several things we could title this whole book called Hebrews. I've titled it, We See Jesus. I still think it's the best title for us, for our time, and I think it's one of the best titles we could put over the whole homily. But there are other things we could call Hebrews. And if I were to write a book on a commentary of Hebrews, I might be tempted to call it unafraid of the shame. The word actually is kata noeo. It means to think down on something, to disregard something, to not give it much thought or not give it any thought at all. Jesus didn't give any thought to the shame of being crucified. In other words, what people thought of him didn't make that much difference to him, didn't really matter. It's what his father thought. It's what his father directed him to do. What I see my father do, I do. What I hear him speak, I speak. He despised the shame isn't, doesn't really catch it. You see, we read the Bible, we think we've really gotten some enlightenment because we read that verse and it says despise the shame. Well, despise the shame means that he could have been felt terribly embarrassed and ashamed and he despised feeling that way. But that's not what it means. It means he was unafraid of the shame. He wasn't even thinking about the shame. He was thinking about obedience to his father, to the death of the cross, for the salvation of the human race, and the transformation of creation into a new creation for eternal life. That's what he was thinking. What are you thinking about? What am I thinking about? Persevered through the cross, unafraid of the shame. And I like what Isaiah 6.1 says to get off my track a little bit. Isaiah said, in the year that King Uzziah passed away, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Sometimes it takes a political figure that you might admire or with whom you're fascinated or whom you might hate and use as a scapegoat to be taken out of the way before you see the Lord high and lifted up. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he saw the seraphim, the fiery creatures called angels. And they were incessantly saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. Speaking of hosts. Lord God of the armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory, said the seraphim who had the view of what, was, what we would call our future. Jesus, who persevered through the cross, unafraid of the shame, and the whole reason why this 
PT had to address these people at this time is because they were afraid of the shame that would be attached to them continuing their bold confession of Jesus Christ in an atmosphere that was entirely hostile to it because the atmosphere in which they had to live is an atmosphere of the, just like Revelation, of the collusion of a whore, Babylon, and a beast, Rome. And the Babylon is apostate Jerusalem. And it's not much of a stretch to say that we are entering into a time of history in which hostility to faith in Jesus Christ, especially as our exclusive Savior, is going to be experienced. We can't be afraid of the shame. We can't be afraid of the shame. And by the way, let's consider the rest of this verse. He persevered through the cross, unafraid of the shame. He did so because of the joy that was set before him, which is the beatific vision, but we'll get into that another time. And then it says, who has subsequently been enthroned at the right side of God. His whole life was to please God. God rewarded him with an exaltation that's unparalleled anywhere in history or will be paralleled anywhere in prophecy. Now, I want to make seven observations here. This is how it happens sometimes when I look at the scriptures. And even this morning, seven observations popped out of this these correlation of these verses Again, that being primarily Revelation 13.10, Revelation 14.12, Hebrews 10.36a, as well as Hebrews 12.1 and 2. Observations. And these sometimes might seem off the track, but they're addressing things that could be weights that would hold you back. Observation one. It's notable that John spoke of being a partner or participator in the perseverance of Jesus in Revelation 1.9. That's noteworthy not only because of the significance of the perseverance of Jesus himself as disclosed in Revelation, but also because of the intersection of that theme of the perseverance of Jesus with Hebrews. There's even I've even had temptations in the past to consider John, the author of Revelation, to be somehow involved in the authorship of Hebrews. It's not that far-fetched, although I don't really, I can't say that he did. The perseverance that is urged upon the recipients of Hebrews is also a participation in the perseverance of Jesus himself. What's also remarkable is that both John and the PT who wrote Hebrews refer to our Lord by the simple name Jesus. John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the perseverance that is in Jesus, 
came to be on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The PT says, looking away from everything and fixing our eyes on the founder and perfecter of the faithfulness that's required of us, Jesus, who persevered through the cross. That's observation one. Observation two. It's a shame that in the system called Calvinism, the perseverance of the saints is the final salient principle of their famous TULIP acronym. The TULIP acronym, of course, T-U-L-I-P. That's how some people embrace this by this acronym, this Calvinistic system. Total depravity, limited atonement. I had to think for a minute. Unconditional election is the U. Total depravity of man, which is really his total inability to save himself. I'm with you on that. Unconditional election, I'm with you on that. Limited atonement, very much not with you on that. Irresistible grace, I'm even with them on that. Perseverance of the saints. Now, that's where also there's a problem. I say it's a shame because they actually took this term, the perseverance of the saints, right out of Revelation 13.10, and they made it something that wasn't intended by the scriptures. It's often understood in the TULIP acronym, and the system of Calvinism, as it's called, or the, at least the distorted system of Calvinism, is often understood to mean that only the limited group of humanity called the elect will persevere. And by this perseverance, show that they are the elect or the saved. Now, Karl Barth fixed that whole situation. The greatest contribution Karl Barth made to theology is that he revealed, he showed that the scriptures revealed that Jesus Christ was the elect one and in him all mankind was elected. Jesus Christ himself was the rejected one on the cross and the elected one as the representative of all humanity. So this limited atonement deal where it says that he died for the sins of the whole world is rebuked by the limited, limited atonement thing way off the, off the mark. And perseverance of the saints, the way it's used by this system, is also out of kilter with the true word of God. If the perseverance of the saints is required for salvation, I was going to say only a tiny few would be saved, but I don't think anybody would be saved. especially if the perseverance was up to us. If it was up to us, no one would be saved. In fact, we're all saved because of the perseverance of Jesus Christ through the cross. But if the perseverance of the saints is required for salvation, then no one will be truly saved, and only a tiny few in their eyes would show themselves to be so-called God's elect. The perseverance of the saints in its true form 
and its true context is actually a phrase coined in Revelation, and it's a call to persevere through tribulation and persecution by participating in the perseverance that is in Jesus. The very perseverance which Jesus exercised through the unparalleled ordeal of his passion and of the cross, and not just any cross, but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, which speaks of the death in which one inclusive representative man, the man Christ Jesus, experienced the wages of sin for everyone in an act that Matthew 20:28, 20, Mark 10:45, and 1 Timothy 2, 6 refers to as the ransom price for everyone. The term the perseverance of the saints, therefore, is distorted in a system of doctrine which also teaches a limited atonement. That's observation two. Observation three, that John is also a partner, or we could even say a fellow participant or co-sharer, in the tribulation and the kingdom reveals not only that he is with his fellow saints in the Agona, with you in the Agona, with us in the Agona, and in the tribulation, which Jesus told his disciples is inevitable in this world. In John 16, 33, the tribulation he's talking about is the tribulation that is inevitable in this world because of hostility to the message and hostility to the confession of Jesus Christ, and especially today of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as Savior. And so I believe that the same John who wrote the gospel wrote the apocalypse of John and is referring in Revelation 1-9 back to John 16.33, that tribulation. But John is also our partner, or their partner, the partner of his readers and of the angels of the seven churches, in that which would lead to the unprecedented tribulation or the time of great tribulation that Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24 and in its parallels in Mark 13 and Luke 19 and Luke 21. The prophetic interval called the tribulation, the great tribulation, unprecedented and unrepeated, had to do with the destruction of the temple at Jerusalem in A.D. 30, or A.D. 70, rather, and the profound theological implications associated with that catastrophe. So here's another error that we can censure today. Those who teach that this great tribulation is on our future horizon, are in error. Now that's not to say that we will not endure tribulation, hard times, perilous times, and persecution. But it is to say that what Jesus called the great tribulation is now a fact of past history. Now, especially in a time of plague or pandemic, you have people coming out of the cracks, 
to try to predict the coming of Jesus and try to say this person is Satan coming out of the abyss or this person's the beast, this person's the Antichrist, here's 666 and all this other nonsense. Don't pay attention to these people. They have distorted souls for one thing. Fourth observation. Saints is a term deployed for the sanctified people of God in both Revelation 13, 10, 14, 12, and in Hebrews, saints is a term describing the sanctified people of God. Hebrews 2, 10 to 13, Hebrews 6, 10, Hebrews 13, 24. The perseverance of the saints in both cases is a participation in the perseverance of Jesus that is experienced in the power of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. We're going to have a lot more to say about that. Let me ask you this just as a kind of forecast of where we're going or a question to ask in terms of where we're going. How does Hebrews 4.12 come out of that whole fluency of the letter? In other words, you go up to Hebrews 4.11 where it talks about entering into rest and how we enter into rest. And then it says the word of God is alive and powerful. Why there? Why? How do we justify that segue is it a smooth segue has the writer just thrown in an homage to the word of God or is there a true segue a true fluency that Hebrew to Hebrews 412 well we're going to consider that pretty soon and I think you'll see that there is in fact a very smooth segue from 411 to 412 The fifth observation, the saint's participation in the perseverance of Jesus is linked to the saint's participation in Jesus' faithfulness. That's kind of a big deal in Romans. To act in faith, and that's in the Greek, it's piste, P-I-S-T-E-I, where is piste found? Well, it's passim. Passim. That's a word that means found everywhere, throughout. Found throughout Hebrews 11. Piste. Piste is to be pre-moved by a powder, power greater than you. Pre-moved. Pre-motion. Get used to that word. Pre-motion and pre-moved. That'll be coming into focus when we get to Hebrews 4.12, I think. To act in faith, piste, is to participate persistently in Jesus' faithfulness. Now, what did Paul say? I was crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Nevertheless, it's Christ living in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, that is, in this human body before glorification, I live what? By the faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't frustrate the grace of God. Frustrating the grace of God would be trying to live in your own faithfulness rather than in, as a participation of the faithfulness of the Son of God. So that's the fifth observation. Sixth observation. And the seventh is going to fly into a, a conclusion. 
6. The perseverance and faith required of the saints in Revelation 13.10 is in the historical context of the world system as defined by a collusion of what John called the second beast with the whore of Babylon. Now we put a lot of energy and study into in our book of Revelation called Rev the Book, our study of Rev the Book. And we took a minority view of the identification of the whore of Babylon. Usually it's referred to as Rome, the Roman Empire. Some people have been stupid enough to try to identify it as the Catholic Church. But we've identified it and seen it as identified with apostate Old Jerusalem. Old Jerusalem. At the close of the Second Temple era in collusion with Rome. In collusion with Rome. So the world system was defined by Second Temple apostate Jerusalem and SPQR or Sonatus Populusque Romanus. I used to call that IAF, which is Israel after the flesh, under the control of the flesh, and slash SPQR. That was the world system at the time. That was the dominant world system at the time. We took the minority view, and I think we showed it to be true, that the whore of Babylon does not identify with Rome per se, but with the apostate old Jerusalem at the close of the Second Temple era, and that Jerusalem in collusion with Rome. When they called for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the leaders and the elders said to Pontius Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. There's the collusion. Now the beast we identified as the Caesar of Rome. That's been pretty almost common knowledge now among true scholars that the 666 is gematrial, for Neron Caesar, Nero Caesar, also known simply as Nero at the time. The second beast, who's he? Well, Revelation 13.10, that's whom he appointed as secretary of religion. The second beast was appointed by Caesar as identified with being the secretary of religion which means that he was the head of the Caesar cult, the Caesar worship cult. It was his job to punish anyone who refused to worship Caesar as divine, as soter or savior, as kurios or lord, and even as theos or god. That the Caesar was equated with the title son of God, and that's what Augustus called himself and was called son of Zeus or son of the divine. That meant that when you held the confession publicly that Jesus is the son of God, obviously incurred the wrath of the beast and of Babylon, which at the time was the willing consort of the beast. So whenever, here's a principle for you under observation six still. Whenever human governments become corrupt, the state often adopts the role of deity, while at the same time it colludes with 
religion and with belligerent foreign governments through whom those in power are profiting in one way or another, either secretly or just defiantly. They don't care anymore if you know that. The religion that corrupts government colludes with the, the let's just say, the religion that corrupt government colludes with today is that of atheistic humanism, which is, has its own facade of piety and self-righteousness and a sanctimonious and odious pretension of caring for the environment and for all people though most of them believe that there should be a lot less people in the world and are doing things about it. And they do all this while genuflecting to the universe in worship of the creature over the creator. This is abominable to anyone who knows Jesus Christ, obviously. It's abominable. Seventh observation, and there are many more. In fact, I'd challenge you, if you're studying this, find a whole bunch of other observations that you can put together from the correlation of these verses and the intersection of these verses from Rev the book and Hebrews the homily. Seventh observation, that the initial recipients of the Hebrews homily we're said to be surrounded by a cloud, and then I saw this, I said this earlier, I'm just kind of emphasizing it now or fanning it out. Or a host of witnesses implies that there are witnesses, including actual martyrs, all around them, both in their past and in their future. It says not just behind them, but surrounding them. So right now, you and I, if we were believers in Christ, we are witnessing the Hebrews and their, or the recipients of the homily to Hebrews and their challenge to persevere in faith. We are part of the cloud of witnesses if indeed we hold the confession of Jesus Christ and hold it boldly and hold it firmly. We actually are viewing them in history behind us, but we are also being viewed by the heroes of faith in our past and by the recipients of the Hebrew epistle. We can't even say that the exhortation was successful. Some of these believers may have disobeyed it, like the desert generation, and then because of a fear of shame extinguished their own bold confession of Jesus Christ. I prefer to be optimistic. I prefer to be positive and hope that his exhortation didn't fall on deaf ears or hardened hearts and hardened ground. I hope it doesn't fall on hard ground with you and I either. So that the initial recipients of Hebrews, homily, were said to be surrounded by a cloud or host of witnesses implies that there are witnesses, including actual martyrs, all around them, both in their past and in their future. 
So the Hebrews homily anticipated your perseverance and your participation in Messiah's faithfulness, as well as recounting that the elders in times before the initial recipients of Hebrews were also part of that audience, that stadium. Now, if the saints are dressed in brilliant white, then the stadium must look like clouds or a cloud, a surrounding cloud. Well, more on that another time. We are witnesses of the challenge to fidelity that was given to them, even as they are now witnesses to the challenge to our fidelity and perseverance. Contrary to sin or unbelief, which is the prime factor in history's decline, listen to that. Contrary to sin or unbelief, which is the prime factor in history's decline, and beyond natural human virtue and adherence to divinely established institutions, like the Constitution of the United States. Adherence to that from people of virtue is a primary factor of historical progress. So we have faith as the third element in history as neither lending to history's decline or progress but to history's renaissance or redemption of history. What's needed right now is more than ever is a redemption of history. So contrary to sin or unbelief, which is the prime factor in history's decline, and even beyond natural human virtue and adherence to divinely established institutions, like the Constitution example, being a factor in history's progress, faith against unbelief, the factor in history's decline, and beyond natural virtue, the factor of history's progress, is faith, the primary factor of history's renaissance, where even negative trends of history can be synthesized in a new synthesis of history and a better time than we've ever known before in history such as in America or in whatever country you're from faith is the supernatural factor in history's renaissances or the redemption of history faith and now we're going to take off on faith a little bit Faith is integrally or integrally related to God's grace, as it is in Romans 4.16. And God's grace redeems history. In the present historical decline, we must have hope, not only in the coming of Jesus, but also in the control of history by Jesus until that moment. I'll say that again. In the present historical decline, we must have hope, 
not only in the coming of Jesus a second time when he brings salvation in Hebrews 9.28, but we must also have confidence in his control of history until that moment. As history has intervals of decline, so it can be pulled up in a new and surprising sequence of events leading to a renaissance consisting of a new political, moral, and economic synthesis which is attributable solely to God's grace even if God exercises his grace through fallible human vessels and angelic interventions. Now the last couple of sentences I just said is really their thesis sentences for maybe a volume of something down the road. Now, like love, faith is a many-splendored thing. It actually works by love, and it works with love. Galatians 5, 6, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Many places you see the trio, faith, hope, and love. Usually hope is flanked by faith and love. Faith is a sharing in the fidelity and the obedience of Jesus. But that's not all that faith is. I said it's a many-splendored thing. Just like wisdom of God is polypoikilos, which means it's many-tinted, it's variegated. So you can't just define faith as one thing, although the Hebrew writer tries and gets it pretty close in Hebrews 11.1. But when he says faith is the hope, is the substance of things hoped for, and the conviction or the evidence of things not seen, he's only talking about one aspect of faith. So here we have it. Faith actually works by love and with love, and it's a sharing in the fidelity and obedience of Jesus. It's also the substance of things hoped for and the conviction of the existence of an unseen realm, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith as defined and illustrated in Hebrews is compatible with reason. If you think of faith versus reason, you're thinking on the wrong plane. Faith is compatible with reason. Let me explain. Believing is compatible with being intelligent and reasonable. And it's never better illustrated than in Hebrews. In the same context, Hebrews, unbelief, on the other hand, is seen both to be irrational and unintelligent. Let me ask you this. Let me put it this way. You, perhaps you were part of a crowd that saw the plagues of Egypt, the ones that didn't even spare Pharaoh, and his firstborn son. Perhaps you saw that list of ten plagues. Perhaps you were in the same group of people that went out from Egypt and saw a sea split open and the waters heaped on either side so that hundreds of thousands of you could walk across on dry land under your feet. 
and that the other side on the other beach, you look back and saw those waters collapse only after the armored divisions, the chariot divisions, and the cavalry of Pharaoh had gone all the way in, and you saw your enemies destroyed in that way. After that, you saw God marching. It says he marched in front of them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. You could hear the footsteps of his marching omnipresence, his marching omnipotence. Psalm 68 put it that way. You saw water gushing out from a rock that was able to feed or to quench the thirst of every Israelite, hundreds of thousands and all their livestock. You saw quails fall on the whole encampment to the point where everybody ate so that some people even overate so that when a plague came, the people that over overate died first. Sounds familiar. You saw a kind of dew on the grass, on the desert sand every morning across the whole horizon. And you saw, as the dew dried, you saw it become tiny little flakes, flakes that were not only edible but perfectly nutritious. You gathered those and they fed you day by day after day after day. You saw God defeat enemies of desert tribes just by Moses holding his hands up. Let me ask you this. Would it be reasonable for you then, when God said, go into that land and take it because the giants there are going to just be food for you, and you said, oh, no, that's, I'm not going to do that. No way. I can't trust you for that. Is that reasonable? Unbelief is unreasonable. Faith is perfectly reasonable. And so I think I illustrated the point. Not only that, unbelief is the essence of sin, and as such, it's that which easily ensnares and restricts our movement and stops us from running the race that's set before us and fighting the good fight, the fight that happens to be the fight of faith. It's the desert generation that illustrates this latter truth. God said, quote, your ancestors tested me, put me to the proof, even as they were seeing my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked by this generation. I think that's the most, that's the epitome. Unbelief is the epitome of unreasonableness, unintelligence. And that's why in Hebrews 5, 11 to 14, the writer says, some of you become dull, you're sluggish, you're lethargic. You're lacking intelligence because of an unbelief does that to you. And so, it can be said that not believing and not hoping in God's salvation was irrational and unreasonable, especially in the case of a people who had seen his works, all of which were directed to their salvation. God is a God who saves. God is a God of our salvation. God is our salvation. He acts exclusively to save, even when he judges, 
even when he seems to punish, even when his wrath is kindled. So we have much to say about all these things. The heart of the matter being targeted in Hebrews is the faith or unbelief of the recipients of that homily in a letter from a teaching pastor. And that's what's happening today. Teaching pastors should be challenging people to persist in faith. The great issue of faith today is whether or not we will trust God to be our helper as we retain our bold confession of Jesus in a hostile world and in an ever more increasing intolerant society, not unlike the Babylon Beast coalition of the time of Hebrews and the book of Revelation. This comes to full clarity only toward the end of the homily. In other words, what the pastor's over, what he's after the whole time comes into a clear focus at the end of the homily, near, that, near the end, and I speak specifically, and I'll close with this, of Hebrews 13, 5. To those whose chief concerns threatened to be merely material and financial, the PT says this, Hebrews 13, 5. Let your way of being, your manner of life here means your livingness, your beingness, your very way of existence, be free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, that's God saying this, I won't desert you. I'll never leave you behind. So what's our response to be then? In verse 6, that's our response. So we can boldly say, the Lord is my patron. There's a huge line of patron and beneficiary concept running through Hebrews. Patron here means supporter and protector as well as champion. So we can boldly say the Lord is my patron. Of whom will I be afraid? What can man do to me? Father, we pray that you'll take these words and transform them into our participation with the perseverance of Jesus in our own time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.